Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm going to have a uh, wonderful hour planned for you today because Dr. Greg Ganzel is my guest. And I'm going to say, just to get things started, our our deepest desires, how the Christian story fulfills human aspirations. That's the title of his book. He's written six, but this is the one we're going to discuss today. And as humans, we are um, created with deep, deep, deep desires. And we we all have longing to have really meaningful relationships and we want to live a life that reflects goodness and truth and beauty and we want to have a freedom to pursue our life with integrity. But don't we have restless hearts? And what do we do when we have a restless heart? We look for ways to fill these universal longings. Greg is not only a philosopher, but he's an apologist and uh, he is our guest for the full hour. I'm excited to have you meet him. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I love, you're out of Biola University? Yes, yeah, I teach at Talbot School of Theology in the graduate philosophy program. Uh-huh, and uh, you attend, at, you also have taught at Yale, is that correct? Yes, well, I, I worked for 20 years at Yale with the Rivendell Institute, which okay. is a Christian think tank, and then along the way, I was able to be a part-time lecturer for maybe nine or ten years, um, teaching one class a term in the philosophy department, and that was great fun. Mm-hmm. So your book is, uh, the minute I saw the title of this book, I said to Rosie, let's book him, let's get him. And then I found out that you work at Biola and you're friends with uh, other people that I know, and we're very excited to have you on the show. So let's talk a little bit about um, happiness, just to get things started. That's one of our deepest desires. We all yes. want to be happy. Ab- absolutely. I mean, Aristotle starts his uh, Nicomachean ethics with almost that very sentence. Every every person desires to be happy, but then there's various understandings of what happiness amounts to. Um, so it's always been a universal drive. And then when we hear people say, you know, I, I want to be happy, then there's Christians that'll say, well, well, God just wants you to be obedient, not happy. And I think you probably have something to say about that. Yes, I, I actually think that... Um, that that raises uh, kind of an incorrect view of of God's will for our lives. Of course, God wants us to be obedient, but um, but that's for our own good, right? He wants us to be obedient because um, following Him is the path to the best life for a human being. Um, I I was on an airplane one time and I overheard a conversation. But it was too far away for me to get into it, um, <laughs> yeah. where, where there was a theology teacher, apparently, and a young woman asked him, why are the Ten Commandments, so many of them, about God? And the, and the theology teacher didn't have a good answer. And I wanted to break in and say, um, think about this illustration. The first thing you teach your toddler is to obey your parents. 
because his safety depends on it. It's, it's kind of a universal rule that can apply when the parents say, don't cross the street, don't run out into the driveway. You know, they need to know to obey. And that's really what obeying God is. It's for our protection and for our flourishing. The mm-hmm. commands of God are always for our flourishing. So we obey, in a sense, in order to be happy, but we have to think about the concept of happiness that's at work in the scriptures. So, Greg, when we think of happiness and and having a fulfilled life, I would imagine at the top of the list is people. Yes, very much so. Um, and and when, when I wrote this book, what I was really trying to do it's really written to people who are not yet believers. Although I know it's gonna be helpful for people who already are following Christ. Um, I was trying to show that the Christian story makes sense to the things we care most about. And that's why I framed it this way, because most, most people who aren't Christians in our culture think Christianity is kind of awful. It's, 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 it represses everything that's human. And I was trying to show that actually it supports what it really means to be human. And at the center of our concerns and values is, is um, our relations to other people. Um, when, when, when things are bad, we worry about the people. I, I tell the story about 9-11 mm-hmm. and how nobody grieved for the buildings, even though the buildings were beautiful. We grieve for the people. People are always at the center of our value structure, our deep desires, what makes for a flourishing life. Yeah, that's definitely true, Bill. Mm -hmm. Greg, talk about, if you would, some of the ideas and values that we all hold so dear and how Christianity is really the, that Christian worldview is really the, the best way that explains why these are so valuable to us. Yeah, I, I think this is an important point because a lot of people, um, not just Christians, um, think that we don't have any values in common, especially between Christian people and non-Christian, secular people. Um, but if we peel back the layers, we share fundamental values like the importance of human beings, um, like goodness. Every Everybody wants to live a good life. They want to be good people. Um, we another section of my book talks about beauty, that that beauty is a central value to humanity. And then the last section is about personal freedom, and how that's connected to truth and hope. And so if we if we kind of go behind the differences of opinions about things like. Um, you know, politics or social policy, we see lying behind these differences of opinion are a deep set of shared values. And this is what I'm trying to appeal to. And then I kind of tell the Christian story and how the Christian story connects with these things. God made us in his image and gave us a task to be fruitful and multiply, to cultivate the world. Um, to live in rich community with him and with one another, um, to bring good and true and beautiful and useful things out of the good world he made, um, to experience our freedom as we um, 
um, follow him faithfully. Um, and, and it's through the creation and redemption of God that we see that these values actually matter. They matter to us, they matter to God, and they are the foundation of what you could call a flourishing life. Yeah, I'd love for you to say more about that, Greg, because especially with COVID and what we've been going through the last 14, 15 months, the loss of human connection, the loss of uh, interaction, uh, there's been a, a reduction in human flourishing for sure. I, I think that's right. I think it's going to take years even to discern the um, psychological impact of um, the various lockdowns, mm -hmm. not just the impact of those who experience personally or in their loved one's sickness and death, but the isolation factor. Mm -hmm. um, and and people will react differently to this, but it, it, it highlights that um, one of our most fundamental needs and one of the things that shapes the quality of our life are relationships. And what's what's interesting is we could say quickly, well, we do have relationships because we can email, we can Zoom or Skype, uh, we can be on the telephone, but what's missing is the embodied relationship, the, the physical presence with people. Well, there's a parallel there in the Christian story because God made us physical people he created us in particular locations, and then he walked with us. I mean, we could tell the whole story, but in terms of God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, and then when the fall occurs, God's first question is, where are you, right? Because they were no longer walking together. And then when God becomes incarnate, his name will be Emmanuel, God with us, this this presence. And then in the new heavens and the new earth, we see God declaring, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will be with you. There will be no need for a son because God himself will be the light. And, and so the whole story arc can be told along a theme of presence. And it's actually in large part embodied presence mm -hmm. through the person of Jesus. Greg, I'd like to talk a little bit more about our our deepest desires. I'd love to spend some time kind of sorting through that, kicking the tires a little bit, because I know when people hear deepest desires, everybody has their own definition, their own dictionary of what that's going to constitute. Yes, yes. I, I, I did a lot of self-reflection as I was thinking about these topics, and I, I realized that um, I have desires and I have deep desires. Interesting. And my shallow desires, sometimes <laughs> I call them vacation desires, because what I really want is to be on vacation. I want to sit on my back patio with a cup of coffee, talk to my wife, enjoy the day, read a book. And and there's nothing wrong with these desires. But, but if I am more reflective, I, I, I sense that what I really want out of life is, is something more. It's not something instead of these things, because vacation desires are great for vacation, but I want a life that's that where I experience meaning, I experience depth of relationship. I, I embody certain virtues. I want to be a generous, kind person. And, and I think it doesn't take very long in any conversation to help a person see that the, that that he or she 
shares these kinds of deeper desires. So interesting. I, I love the fact that you're drawing a distinction between shallow desires and and putting yep. some meat on that bone because I think that represents how a lot of people feel. They're looking for that next shallow desire, yet none of that, as enjoyable as it is, is deeply fulfilling. Yes, if you were on vacation your whole life, um, that's going to become unfulfilling. Totally, yeah, excellent point. Let me take a short break. Uh, Dr. Greg Ganzel is my guest. He's written a book called Our Deepest Desires, How the Christian Story Fulfills Human Aspirations. We'll be right back. Human aspirations are probably best understood, and aren't we glad they are, uh, by the story of the gospel and the Christian uh, story that we have that God has given us. My guest is Dr. Greg Gansel. He's written a book called Our Deepest Desires, How the Christian Story Fulfills Human Aspirations. And um, Greg, I would love for us to talk a little bit about uh, goodness, because I know that we all at some point want to, to be good and to have goodness in our life. But um, why is that such a deep desire? Um, I, I think I think we recognize a couple of things about goodness. Um, and, and one of my chapters talks about this, is that goodness is good for us. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and, Keep it um, simple. It, well, because there are some cultural um, pressures that can make us think that goodness is something that we want to avoid. And, you know, we, we, we enjoy uh, movies that, you know, have evil characters and we watch television shows about crime. And, and it may seem to us that, that evil or badness is more interesting than goodness. But, but I, I think when we reflect deeply, we're going to see that, that, in reality, we value goodness much more. Um, all of our heroes, if you take away people like uh, rock stars and sports people, celebrities, our heroes tend to be moral heroes. People mm-hmm. like Martin King Jr., Mother Teresa, and, and, and we're attracted to those kinds of lives. Um, so so I, I think when we reflect, we see this sense that People really want to be good. I mean, I describe in the book, if you if you overhear a conversation between people and if someone is saying, look, what you did was wrong, the other person in the conversation almost always takes great pains to say, no, it wasn't wrong. There's a defense. Either I had good reason for doing it or you misunderstood what I did. Um, and, and that just reveals that deep down we want to be good. Um, and, 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 and this makes sense 
in the Christian story because goodness is primary and evil is a distortion or a derivation. Um, God is independently of all creation before creation is perfectly good. He creates a good world and that goodness is intrinsic. He creates us in his image. Now, evil comes into the world, but evil can't create anything. It only distorts things. Evil is, in a sense, like a parasite. Mm-hmm. It has to feed on something that's good. So it's not that goodness and evil are equal and opposites in the cosmic scheme. It's that goodness is primary and evil is a distortion. And that and that, that's the biblical view, but that resonates with the way people deeply think about goodness. And and so so the Christian story explains um, why we have this deep sense of goodness. And and of course, goodness is even broader than moral goodness. It has to do with the intrinsic goodness of life and of um, beauty in the world. Um, and the, and the fact that it's good for us has to do with what is the best life. Right. I do a lot of reading in uh, the work of Friedrich Nietzsche. I just finished teaching a seminar on Nietzsche's work. And and he thought that traditional morality was like an external imposition on us that kind of forced us away from the things we wanted most. And and part of what I'm trying to do in these sections is demonstrate that deep down people don't really believe that. Right. One way to to explore this, even in your own thinking, is to take um, two kinds of relationships theoretically and lay them out. So you could have a relationship that's based on deception, um, manipulation and exploitation. Or on the other hand, you could have a relationship that's built on love, gentleness, kindness and trust. And then you can ask people, well, which one do you prefer? And everybody wants relationships based on love, kindness, gentleness, trust, and other qualities like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so goodness is actually good for us. It's good for our relationships. It's attractive. It's so attractive. And then when we talk about uh, loving our neighbor as ourself, I don't even know how we'd begin to do that without a desire for goodness, if we're not looking for goodness, or if goodness is not primary in our life, I don't know how you go about that. I I agree with you. Um, when you think, what does it mean to love my neighbor? It means to want and to work for their good. What is good for them? You know, and and this is the way parents raise children. What what is good for my child? Um, it's not always what's most fun for my child, but what is good for my child. Mm-hmm. I find that uh, fascinating uh, dimension of thinking about goodness and connecting it to uh, loving and serving our neighbors, mm-hmm. because I, I sometimes um, think that as a believer, it's our it's our obligation and our duty to serve, and we need to do it lovingly. But mm-hmm. I don't. I haven't thought too much about bringing in the the goodness element. This is. Uh, adds another layer to this whole service of loving people because you want to be uh, do goodness and have goodness as a primary uh, driver in the relationship. 
Yes. Yeah, I think that's right, Bill. I think there's something insightful here because um, the goodness of serving is not just the good you do, but it's good for you. Amen to that, Greg. You, you are aligned with what it with what it really means to be human when you um, are serving and loving your neighbor mm-hmm. in whatever city that is. That's the way we were designed. That's what it means to be human. I mean, one element of the Christian story that's crucial is that um, God became fully human in Jesus. And, and there are a million implications, one of which is, if I want to know what it means to be human, I look at Jesus. That's what it means to be human and to be human well. Mm-hmm. Greg, I'm wondering how, we, how I would do a diagnostic on my own goodness um, when I think of, of how do I do a, a look in the mirror to see how I'm doing in that department. I mean, I hardly ever trust my own sincerity. I mean, if I'm doing something, I, I sometimes wonder if, if I'm doing it out of the, the, the goodness and love of my heart or am I doing it because eh, maybe my neighbor will think I'm a good guy. <laughs> well, well. I, I think you raise a really important issue, and I only have a you know in this segment a few like a minute to say a few things. Um, um, I think our motives are always mixed, and and I don't get bent out of shape about my motives. Okay, that's helpful because, to know because uh, Jesus always appeals to our self interest. He says, if you seek first the kingdom, all these things will be added to you. Mm. And, and it's part of our flourishing to align ourselves with his purposes. And um, and so it matters a little bit less if I'm purely motivated. It's better to do the good and then allow our hearts to become aligned with the right action. I think that's kind of a model. Mm-hmm. I like that. Um, I do want to talk a little bit more about goodness and beauty when we come back. Dr. Greg Gansel is my guest. His book is called Our Deepest Desires. If that doesn't get your attention right away, because we all have these deep desires, and I wonder how good we are at talking about them. But the nice, the good news is that the Christian story, as he says in the subtitle, fulfills our human aspirations. Dr. Greg Gansel is my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back.
So what makes for a good human life, and how does Christianity help us understand this better? Thankfully, my guest did a lot of deep thinking about this. Uh, Dr. Greg Gansel is uh, my guest today, and he wrote a book called Our Deepest Desires, How the Christian Story Fulfills Human Aspirations. Greg, I'd love for you to talk about when we get to, to having a real restless heart. I think everybody has seasons of restlessness. I don't know mm-hmm. if you went through it. I know I have. Uh, talk about why we get so restless and and why how that conflicts with our deepest desires. Wow. I, I do think it's very common for people to experience restlessness, um, and I, I certainly do. Um, I think there are all kinds of reasons um, I, I think my my advice to people who are experiencing this kind of spiritual or or emotional restlessness is first don't panic. This is a normal part of. <laughs> I'm writing that this, down. Don't panic. Thank you. Don't panic. Right. It's it's part of our finite human condition in a world that's affected by sin, and of course our our own lives, our souls, so to speak, are affected by sin, and so um, we should expect. I think. Um, seasons or moments or periods of restlessness and and even discontentment. It's it's one of the kind of spiritual formation struggles in a life um, aimed at following Jesus faithfully is to to bring um, our restlessness into in a sense into submission to God. Um, there are all kinds of reasons that we feel restless. Sometimes it's just a matter of not getting enough sleep right. or having a difficult conversation at work that we need to think about. Um, sometimes it's deeper um, challenges like health problems, um, employment problems. There are all kinds of reasons why our sense of equilibrium can be shaken. Uh, and And I think if we read the scriptures with this in mind, we'll see that the scriptures are written by and to people who are experiencing this. Um, they're, they're people in prison, people um, trying to articulate the gospel. You, you can see this in Paul's letters and struggling with faithfulness. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's actually a normal part of the Christian life. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit idealistic or inaccurate and sometimes dangerously so to think I'm going to have um, a shallow version of happiness all the time when I'm a faithful follower of Christ. Mm. One of my wife's favorite verses is in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith and the verse says, some were sawn in two. And, And she likes that because it keeps giving her perspective. Wow. <laughs> to mm-hmm. our life. Yeah. Greg, in your book, and I know your book helps unbelievers see that Christianity is not only true, but it's beautiful. And right. there's a problem with Christianity today, maybe even in America, where um, many are skeptical because it doesn't seem to be good. Maybe you would talk about that. Yeah, th- this is very important. Um, the fundamental challenge to the gospel in America today, I firmly believe, is, is does not have anything to do with the truth of it. Um, it's it's whether it's desirable, whether it's good, and and I think our our mission, so to 
take has got to take this much more seriously. And this is why I wrote this book. I, I meant it to be a conversation starter with someone who's not yet a Christian, but is a thoughtful person. Mm -hmm. So so it'd be a way to start a conversation. And I say in the book, I'm not arguing that Christianity is true in this book. I think it is true, but I'm just trying to show that the things that matter most to us fit really well in the Christian story and don't fit as well in various atheistic stories. Um, so it's it's kind of a, a, technically you would call it a pre-evangelistic kind of um, book. So, and that's, and that's the audience it's most named at. And that's why I phrase things the way I do. Um, I do use the scriptures a lot, but I make the point that I'm not appealing to the scriptures as if they are authoritative. I'm just use them to illustrate what the Christian story is and what it says about our human condition. Mm -hmm. well, believe me, there's a lot of people looking for ways and conversation starters to get their intellectually curious friends and the thoughtful, mm -hmm. kind people uh, engaged in the story of the gospel. So right. it's a great resource. Let, let's talk, if you would, a little bit about beauty. Um, you know, beauty is one thing we never tire of. We, we tire of food, we tire of sex, but we never tire of beauty. That's that's actually true, you know? That's, that's a good insight. Um, I think we have a conflicted relationship to beauty. What you say is right. We're never tired of it. But... But in the back of our minds, we have this idea that it's a luxury and and we really don't deserve it. And 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 I and I, I, I in my section on beauty, I kind of want to dismantle that. I want to talk about that beauty is is a fundamental part of what it means to be human. And and the two reasons are that that um God is the master artist. Mm -hmm. God is not just a craftsman when he creates the world. He's an artist. He makes it beautiful. And, and there's such an extravagant generosity in God's creation. As I say in the book, you know, I, I've always been a reptile amphibian fan. <laughs> That's why there are so many different kinds of frogs. It's yeah. because God has extravagant generosity in, in his creation. Um, and, not only is he a master artist, but he made us to be artists. And and the the tiny little section in Genesis where God gives what has come to be known as either the creation mandate or the cultural mandate, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, is, is God's command is for us to extend the boundaries of the garden that he created. Mm -hmm. He us in a garden and then he says okay multiply that means there's going to be a lot of people so you have to extend the boundaries cultivate the world and bring true and good and beautiful and useful things out of it the radical thought is that god left creation in some sense incomplete and delegated the completion of creation to us now we don't create things out of nothing like god did, but but our making something of the world is part of this um, hardwired aspect of the image of God. Um, and that's why we resonate with the work of our hands, with beauty. Um, and and it's a it's the creation of beauty and the enjoyment of beauty that's a deep part of our human nature. Mm -hmm. 
you, you think of the, the creative brilliance. I can't even think of the word that I could use to describe it, but you, you think of the ways in which, and I hope when I get to heaven I can see the, the artist's studio where Jesus or God painted uh, the fish. If you've ever been snorkeling in Hawaii, you go, you got to be kidding me. Uh, yes. It's so mind-blowing, and his artistic ability is, is uh, of course, there's no equal because he is the creator, but uh, it's yeah. so profound that yeah. this is the beauty that we enjoy. So how does this beauty point us the way home? Right. I think beauty points us the way, way home because the experience of beauty is unlike lots of our other experiences. It leaves us wanting more. And, and, and artists and poets have written about this, this sense of, of a combination of satisfaction and dissatisfaction we get when we encounter beauty. And, and the, the two ways I think beauty leads us the way home is it, it reminds us that this world is our home. Now, that's not a popular view among Christians. We tend to think this world is not my home, but it actually was a fit place for us. And one of the philosophers I quote, Roger Scruton, in his book on beauty, says, the experience of beauty reminds us that this is a good place to be. I, I think we have to recapture that, that this world is a good place to be. Of course, it's twisted and corrupted by sin, but the twisting doesn't twist all of the goodness and beauty out of it. We were created, embodied to be in this place and to cultivate it. Um, but secondly, it leads us the way home because there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And, and theologically, what's one of the crucial things about the next life is that we are going to be embodied. It's a physical life. That's why we don't believe in um, just disembodied souls. We believe in the resurrection of the body. So we will work, we will create, we will um, be with each other in physical presence in the new heaven and the new earth. And our experience of beauty ignites a longing for um, a sense of permanence and a resolution and these are the things that we'll be experiencing in the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah, that's a wonderful thought. I love thinking about that. And I think about the, the beauty in which God created. And again, reminded that when we reconnect to that beauty, we do understand us in a greater way, a sense of his glory and, and um, um, his magnificence. I mean, people will sometimes go and spend a week staring at a mountain range. And then, exactly. then they're never tired of looking at the mountains or the ocean. That, that's, that's exactly right. And, and, and the other aspect of it is when we create everyday beauty. So sometimes we think beauty has to be what we call high art, paintings in a museum. But we create everyday beauty. We are participating in the work of God because God creates good and beautiful and true and useful things. And we participate in this work as we use our um, skills to shape the world in ways that are good and beautiful, mm -hmm. even very small thing. 
All right, let me take a little break. I'm talking to Dr. Greg Ganzel. He's written a book called Our Deepest Desires, How the Christian Story Fulfills Human Aspirations. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So glad to have Dr. Greg Gansel as my guest. We're talking about uh, our deepest desires today and how the Christian story fulfills human aspirations. Greg, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about just our core identity as we go out into the world. You know, we all have these deep desires, and they're ones that we can't we can't escape. And I, I want to say, how do we get ourselves on this 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 track with this um, vision to pursue these in the light of what the gospel is offering us. I don't know if I asked that question very well. I'd like to take that question in for a fitting and have it back for you by Wednesday. Actually, I was going to say that's a great way to ask that question. Oh, okay. It felt very discombobulated when I said it. But anyway. Well, the, the, these are these are complicated things. I mean, I use the term core identity um, because I, I used to think that a a person's worldview was the deepest thing about them. And I, you know, if you read a lot about worldviews, you can get that impression. And I began to realize that there's something actually more fundamental. And, and that has to do with what are my deepest, it's a combination of beliefs and desires Mm -hmm. about who I am and who I want to be. And if someone changes worldviews, if they if they come to faith in Christ or if they walk away from the gospel, um, chances are there's something about their core identity, their, mm-hmm. their deep sense of who they are and who they want to be that is a fulcrum for those kinds of changes. And, and it, takes, it just takes reflection um, at the very least to think, okay, what, what do I really want? What do I really think of myself? And for people who are, are are believers and following Jesus and aspire to follow him faithfully, we we have to ask questions like, do I really think that God loves me the way I am? Or do I, I believe that like I believe something that I'll tell you I believe, but in my heart, I'm not sure. Right? That's a disconnect in my core identity. I don't really believe that I'm mm. loved. So, so one of the big challenges for us and our, our, our development of our faithful following of the Lord is, is bringing Jesus into our core identity, allowing, allowing the reality of the gospel to shape what I deeply love, what I deeply um, believe about myself. Um, and one of the things that's helped me in in my journey is um, reading through the gospel stories over and over again, especially the stories when Jesus encounters people, and and asking questions like when 
you know, well, well, what did this person want? And when am I like that? What does this person need? And when am I like that? And how does Jesus touch this person? Can he touch me this way? Um, this has been one of the most profound things over the last, I don't know how many years, maybe 20. In my, It takes me a long time to reflect. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you think about the story of Jesus is on his way to, to heal Jairus's daughter. Mm -hmm. And this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years sneaks up behind him and touches his garment and is healed. Mm -hmm. And um, then Jesus does the cruelest thing he does in all the Gospels. He forces her in front of everybody to tell the story. And, and one of the things going on is she was unclean because of this hemorrhage. So she shouldn't have been in the crowd in the first place. And she had been humiliated. Her core identity had been crushed for 12 years. She had been, in a sense, told that she's not part of the community. And Jesus forces her to tell her story in public. And um, to make the long story short, What's so dramatic is he calls her daughter, your faith has saved you. What an affirmation of her value and her worth. And he does this in public. She's the only person that Jesus calls daughter in all of the Gospels. And so, so you encounter these stories and you say, wow, here's a woman whose sense of who she was was crushed 12 years. So she thought, I'm anonymous to God. I'm going to sneak up to Jesus, touch his garment, and leave before anyone sees me because I'm really invisible. And Jesus loved her too much to let her stay anonymous. And so anyway, so this wrestling with these things helps, helps me think more about um, my sense of who I am and who I want to be than just you know, learning the, the facts about the gospel story. Greg, really a great, great, powerful point. I mean, clearly this woman wanted a, uh, a touch and run. She wanted no part of anything yes. other than the magic touch of his cloak and to get out of there and to be healed. And I'm sure she was quite desperate. And yet mm -hmm. Jesus was going to ask her to do something much greater than she ever had anticipated you know, meanwhile, Jairus is going, what's with this? I got a dying daughter. Exactly. And and um, Jesus restores her in public because she had been humiliated publicly. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's just powerful. It is very powerful. Yeah, you, yeah. Got, you got Rosie tearing up over here, so thanks a lot. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the, the notion that, that thinking hard about Honestly, who am I? Who do I think I am? And who do I want to be? And this is a question that's a leverage for conversations with people who aren't following Christ. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of person should we be? What kind of person do you want to be? That, that moves past the vacation desires and into the deeper desires. Ah. Mm -hmm. uh... So I think of people that have desires, but they don't have a plan. They don't have any way of 
they're sitting on the couch eating Doritos going, I have got to get in shape. Yes. And there's no plan. <laughs> so when you're having these conversations, Greg, with people and they go, I want to be a good person. I want to be that generous person that you've talked about that does that thing for the neighbor and, you know, all these things. But what, what's the action plan for taking a step? I think this is a great question. And, and um, I think the scriptures are, give us some good tracks to run on. Um, but, but the, the action plan is not unique to the scriptures, right? Of course, when, when, uh, the new Testament was written, it was written in the context of, um, both, um, second temple Judaism, the Jewish culture of the time and the Greco Roman culture. And there was a lot of, um, discussion of the fact that, um, you, what you do is the first step in shaping your desires and your character, right? Aristotle would say, you become virtuous by doing virtuous things. Mm -hmm. You don't wait for virtuous. And, and that resonates with, with the gospel. Paul writes in Philippians, the things you have heard and seen and learned and received from me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And, and, and the, the, the way to develop is to, um, in a sense, do first and desire second. Um, now, some people might push against this and think, well, isn't that a little bit hypocritical if um, I really don't feel like getting exercise? And and I say it's not hypocritical unless you pretend like you feel like you're on exercise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you get off the couch and go for a walk, um, you, you are taking the first steps. And of course, that the exercise thing is both literal and a metaphor for becoming generous, for example. Mm -hmm. If you want to be a generous person, what can you give today? Yeah. What Great if today point. I gave something and then I did it again tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah. Versus uh, in the next three years, if I get that raise I'm hoping for, I might start giving more money. Right. Right. Yeah. So... I hope my boss think... was listening, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, we've got about three minutes left, Greg. I'd love for you to talk about personal freedom and freedom and truth. Well, well, when I first designed the book, I wanted to write a chapter on truth because goodness, beauty, and truth are the traditional, um, what they used to call the transcendentals. These are properties that stand above all kinds of categories. Um but I realized as soon as you talk about truth, things become divisive. So I, I kind of framed it under personal freedom. Um, what does it mean to be free as, a, as an individual? Um, is it just to do whatever I want? And, and I argued that um, truth is part of freedom because in order to be free, I have to be reality oriented. I have to have a, tr a true sense of who I am, what my situation, is. Um, and of course, I, I give some pushback to certain to, to some of the postmodern um, flavor that truth is an oppressive tool. Um, of course, concepts of truth can be wielded oppressively. That's true. But um, truth is actually a step to freedom, unless I have a good diagnosis of my condition. This is why Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And then he went on to say, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. 
you need a diagnosis of what is keeping you in bondage before you can be liberated. Mm -hmm. So there's a connection between freedom or liberation personally and a life oriented towards truth. Yeah. Greg, you've done some great thinking on this. I so appreciate you uh, coming on the show and talking about this. You've given us lots to think about. It's a fascinating um, discussion where we say we can better equip ourselves to try to reach unbelievers with this powerful message of the gospel. Thank you so much. It's a powerful message. Thank you so much for all you do. Dr. Greg Gansel has been our guest. His book is Our Deepest Desires, How the Christian Story Fulfills Human Aspirations. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. You know that means time to ring the bell. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.